Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath, can, uh, your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favour of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Thanks, Katie, and uh, good morning to you all. My name's Matt, and let me add my uh, happy Father's Day to the fathers here. Here comes a ball. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's my privilege this morning to walk us through this passage, um, but before we do that, um, how about I pray? Father God, we do uh, thank you for your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to engage with it uh, this morning with our minds. And we pray that you would align our hearts to your heart by it. Uh, Father, there's some difficult parts to this psalm. Uh, we pray that you would give us understanding. And we pray that you would, would use um, what I've prepared as imperfect as it is um, to accomplish uh, your purposes in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as you've worked out by now today, we're starting um, a new series. But uh, more specifically, we're starting a new series on a particular book within the greater book of the Psalms. And I'll explain a bit more on that shortly. Um, and then, of course, we're also looking at a particular psalm today. So to start out, we've got a little bit of context to, s to set, um, so much so that the introduction has its own outline. Uh, so we've got the book of Psalms, we've got book four of the Psalms, and then Psalm 90. So we're going to set some context around each of them. So firstly, some context on, on the book of Psalms, um, perhaps more for, for those who aren't so familiar. Um, Psalms is a, a compilation of 150 songs and prayers. And hence the series title that we have, Songbook for the Kingdom. These 150 psalms are assembled into five collections, or what we might uh, call playlists. But confusingly, um, they're referred to as books 
books 1 through 5 within the book of Psalms. These um, five books or collections have been carefully curated and grouped and sequenced such that they align with different chronological periods uh, in uh, the history of God's people. We've had a previous series in previous years on book one to three, and now we're arriving at book four. I'm sure if you're interested, you can go back and listen to some of the previous sermons. But before we move on to the context of book four, it also might be helpful just to remind and re-envision ourselves as to why it's worthwhile spending some time in the Psalms. And some of this will also be familiar to those who've, who've been around for previous series. First off, the first reason is that the Psalms give us well-worn paths to tread in different situations and seasons of life. John Calvin, the great theologian, said this, I have been accustomed to call this book, meaning the Psalms, I think not inappropriately, the anatomy of all the parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has drawn all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Reason number two is that the Psalms teach us how to relate to God honestly, perhaps even more honestly than we would be comfortable with. The Psalms remind us that we don't need to come to God with pretense. Stoicism is not a mark of godliness. A healthy relationship is always characterized by honest communication and vulnerability and that includes our relationship with God especially when we experience hurt or brokenness anger and suffering or the need to forgive or offer forgiveness we see an incredible rawness in the Psalms between God's people and God himself and, th and that provides a, a helpful model and an encouragement for us to do likewise third reason is that the Psalms help us to see the world around us as it really is. Um, and they, expose, they also expose our sin. They reorientate and they correct our cultural biases. And they elevate God and his character to its rightful place. And the last reason, reason four, is that the Psalms help us to see our need and appreciate our Saviour, Jesus, more. So for these reasons, uh, we can come to the Psalms expectantly, uh, knowing that they will meet us where we're at and that God will minister to us through them, both throughout the course of our lives and, and over this next several weeks as we engage with them. So that's a little bit of context for the series. Let's zoom in a bit further and explore a bit of the, the context of Book 4 of the Psalms. And we break this up into the historical context and the thematic context. So uh, firstly, historically, there's a strong consensus that Book 4 was compiled to reflect on and help God's people during the time of their exile. Now you might recall from our, our recent series on the Jesus story that Israel split into two kingdoms, uh, the northern kingdom, which retained the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah. 
And both were defeated by military conquest and their captors took them into exile. That is, they were removed uh, for the most part from their lands and subjugated by a foreign power. First the northern kingdom by the Assyrians and then about 150 to 200 years later the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. And book four centers on this period of exile for Judah, the southern kingdom. So that's historically. Uh, Thematically, um, book four is considered a response to book three. And book three, you may remember, was dominated by laments and reflections on the defeat of God's people, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the temple, and the actual event of being led into exile. Um, Psalm 79, um, by way of example, says... O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. Book 3 also um, raises theological questions, uh, particularly about the demise of the monarchy, the house uh, and line of King David which God had established and about which God had made some promises that seemed in their present circumstances to have been broken. And you can sympathise with them when you read passages like 2 Samuel 7, which recounts God's promise to David. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And one more slide, I think. Yep. And your, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So naturally, in book three, God's people are crying out, Why, God? Why has this defeat and exile happened? And how can it be consistent with your promises? And this undercurrent in in book 3 reaches its climax in Psalm 89, which is the very last psalm of book 3, right before book 4. And just a couple of verses from that psalm. It says, verse 46, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. And that's the unanswered question that kind of hangs at the end of book three. So it's these historical events and the theological themes that form the backdrop for book four uh, and to which book four responds. Okay, on to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is strategically placed at the top of this playlist called book four. In view of the theological confusion and the unmet expectations of God, the the hopelessness of life in exile, the apparent absence of God, the traumas of the past with its defeats and the destruction of homes, livelihoods and the temple, and the destabilizing uncertainty around the future, Psalm 90 was chosen to steady God's people. And we have to need this kind of steadying as well, don't we? Because we all face seasons, likewise, of of hopelessness, 
unmet expectations of God and our life course, seasons where God seems absent. We too need to deal with a messy past that we aren't proud of and the uncertainty about the future. So let's uh, dive into it um, and hopefully see why uh, this psalm opens book four and in parallel how it speaks to our lives today. And to do that, I've uh, packaged up the outline proper under three kind of practical steps that follow the three main sections of the psalm and that is look up, look out and look down. So let's start with look up. Some of you may know I uh, married into a family of pilots. Um, there are three pilots in, in Kassane's immediate family, all the males. Um, so I'm reliably informed that part of the training to become a pilot is called instrument flying, which as the name suggests is when pilots must fly a plane trusting purely on what the instruments in front of them say and not what they're assuming based on their natural senses. And they do this because in certain situations they can actually get disorientated by their natural faculties. Their, their visibility may be hindered. There might be clouds and darkness. So they have to learn to trust their instruments. And the same can be said um, in regard to the conclusions we might draw about God in our lives. We can get disorientated. The dark clouds of life can obscure a true understanding of God and his character. And Psalm 90 opens up by looking up. Looking up at God and remembering who he is, decoupled from present circumstances, just as a pilot would look at their instruments and not at their perceptions. One of these uh, instruments, so to speak, is actually in, embedded in the, in the subscription or the title that's given to this psalm. It says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Interestingly, this is actually the only psalm in all of the psalms that is attributed to Moses. And the placement of this uh, psalm of Moses at the start of book four implores the reader to zoom out to a time before the exile, before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, before the monarchy even existed, before even the Israelites had entered the promised land, to a time that was particularly relevant given their current circumstances. A time when God's people were, just as they are now, held in captivity by the superpower of the day. You can pull that slide down, thank you. And that was the Egyptians, as you might recall. And what did God do? Well, he miraculously brought his people out of Egypt. And this is a comforting reminder to God's people in exile of what God is capable of and the lengths he will go to for his people. As we move into the psalm itself, the opening verse reinforces this same perspective. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God has always been a place of rest and comfort to his people. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, 
he has been that comfort. Israel's human kings may have provided a visible and tangible sign of, of protection. Jerusalem, the city of David, may have been perceived to have been impenetrable. Uh, the temple was a sacred place uh, for their worship. But ultimately, it is God who is the source of all security and protection of comfort and help. Psalm continues in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Human kings and authorities, they come and go. But God has always been and will always be the true sovereign over all. None can challenge his authority. Nothing will ever displace him from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. And his absolute authority extends even to life and death. We see that in verse 3 to 6. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed in the evening, it fades and withers. The span of a human life is ordained by God. Like a flood that rises and recedes, a work shift that comes and goes, a dream that is not even remembered, a tuft of grass which flourishes and later withers, a human life is fleeting and temporary. But not so for God. A thousand years is like yesterday for him. Time is no obstacle or a hindrance to his plans. So the opening verses of Psalm remind us that when things get tough, we should look up. Look up at God and his nature and his track record in, in dealing with his people. He is our dwelling place, our unchanging anchor, the ultimate authority to whom everything else is subjected, even life and death. Looking up uh, is not easy for us. Our culture tells us that we should look inside, look inside us for strength and for answers. Our default is generally to, to do the same, to look in, to look at ourselves and our circumstances, to look at our failings and our limitations, or to look at the various other dwelling places that we have constructed for ourselves those that give us a, a tenuous and temporary sense of comfort, security and control, but that don't last. Verse 1 to 6 of this psalm encourage and remind us to have the discipline, especially in times of difficulty, to take our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and to look up. Which brings us to our second point, look out. And, and the kind of lookout I'm referring to here is like when you're, in, you're, you're a passenger uh, in a car, someone else is driving, and there's something coming up ahead and you're just not sure if the driver has seen it or not. And you, and you just instinctively yell out, look out! Now, um, I actually get in trouble quite often for doing that uh, when I'm in the, Kassane, in the car with Kassane because I'm a bit of a nervous Nelly uh, as, a, as a passenger. And it's nothing to do with Kassane's driving, it's because I'm not in control. 
but that's uh, not really uh, part of the point I'm making. It's just <laughs> look out. So let's, uh, let's read again uh, from verse 7 to 10. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Apologies if you are hoping for an uh, uplifting Father's Day message today, because uh, I'm going a little uncomfortable here. Because this section illuminates for us two very important but unpleasant realities that every one of us will encounter without exception and, and that we should therefore look out for. The first one being sin and death and the second one futility and frustration. So let's have a, a think about each in the, in the passage starting with sin and death. Again, as a psalm of Moses, it's likely that this reflection um, on, is a reflection on the experience of God's people in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, after they sinned by, amongst other things, building the golden calf, and consequently by God's decree saw a whole generation die out without seeing the promised land. Back then, God's people were acutely aware that they were brought to an end, as it says in verse 7, by God's anger. Because God must punish sin. And as unsavory as that reality is, it was also what God's people living in exile needed to hear. Just as in the wilderness when, when a whole generation died out, there was a reason for their exile. It didn't happen by chance or purely at the hands of men. God ordained it as he had warned he would because of their iniquities and secret sins, just as happened in the time of Moses. And so it is for us. Our iniquities and secret sins are not hidden from God. He sets them before him. The blinding light of his presence reveals them, even those sins committed in private, in thought and in attitude, our unbelief, lust, dishonesty, and greed, they are all known to God. And the wages of sin has not changed. By nature, we pass away under God's wrath. This is, of course, pretty uncomfortable for us. And unfortunately, there's not a way we can sugarcoat it. But there is perhaps one qualification uh, that's important to remember, uh, and that is that God is not an emotionally fragile, insecure, and vengeful God. When we sin, the problem is not primarily that we hurt God's feelings. The problem is that God, by his very nature, is prohibited from associating with sin. And it necessarily, or even instinctively, if I can use that word, arouses his anger and wrath because he is a holy God. Sin is serious and it results in death. So look out for sin. 
Secondly, um, we should also look out for and expect futility and frustration in life. Sin has not only brought about death, it has corrupted life. Everyone experiences the toil and trouble of verse 10 in life. In fact, most of life is toil when you stop and think about it. We toil away in our work week after week on a never-ending stream of to-dos and deadlines. We toil in the home day after day on the same mundane routines and tasks. The dishes, the laundry, meals, repeat. We can also expect trouble, or as other translations put it, sorrow. Broken relationships, unfulfilled longings, disappointments and loss. And in the end, what do we gain? What do we have to show for 70, perhaps 80 years of toil and trouble? Well, back to verse 10, our years quickly pass and we fly away. We leave it all behind and our lives end. So look out for futility and frustration. Don't be surprised when it visits you. The normal life includes toil and trouble, so look out for it. But importantly, we shouldn't just look out for, for the sin and death and futility and frustration. We need to look past them to what they communicate about God. And this is the challenge of the concluding verse of this section of the Psalms, which we didn't read before. It's verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? As we look at sin and and death, and futility, and frustration, we should consider that these are the signs of God's displeasure, manifestations of God's anger against our sin, collectively and individually. And this being the case, we should rightly fear God, because we are by nature, as Ephesians 2 puts it, objects of wrath. So now that we're feeling all warm and fuzzy, uh, let's move on to the, to the final point, look down. And by look down, it's a bit of a stretch, but I mean pray. So in light of uh, all that has proceeded, in response, the psalm now moves to prayer and supplication. So let's bite off a, a little bit at a time and ponder these petitions in the context of what has come before. Saying at verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We are well placed now to appreciate this prayer given what has come before in the psalm. Nothing is more certain than the fact that we will all die. But do we ever stop to think about that? In actual fact, living under the cloud of death can bring clarity of mind and purpose. Wisdom. We aren't forced to confront death all that often these days. For previous generations, the sting of death was far more familiar and present and less clinical and removed. In fact, the kind of follow your dreams mantra that pervades our, our culture has a complete disregard for just how finite, fallen and limited we are. More than ever, we need God to teach us to think about just how transient 
we are. And therefore, about the unknown, but in all cases, short time we have left to gain a clearer sense of our priorities in life. The word for gain here is an agricultural term. It means reaping or harvesting. So we reap a heart of godly wisdom when we uh, approach life with a prayerful awareness of our weakness and complete dependence on God. Verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? This is a prayer and a plea for mercy. And it's the first time in this psalm that the personal name of God that he gave his people is used, Yahweh. And again, in the context of what has come before, this is entirely appropriate. For it is only by God's mercy that we have hope of restoration to God. Move on to verse 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Now in these verses, um, note that the request is not for a change of circumstances, but an appeal that God's steadfast love would make them glad. Clearly the circumstances behind this psalm uh, were difficult and hard, but difficult circumstances and rejoicing are not mutually exclusive. Joy can be found in the midst of affliction, toil and trouble, but only if we're looking in the right place to the steadfast love of God. But how often do we seek it elsewhere? Moses knew, and we need to remember, that God's steadfast, dependable, never-changing love is what brings true and lasting gladness. And finally, verse 16 and 17, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The psalm closes with a reflection on work, God's work, and our work. So first, um, that God's work would be known to them. It was probably the case, given the circumstances alluded to, that seeing just how God was at work was very difficult, and they needed God to point it out. We too um, often acknowledge in theory that God is at work through seasons of hardship, it's often not so easy to see it in practice and we need God's help. We need to ask him to show us. In these verses, they also ask that their children would see God's glorious power, which is no doubt a prayer of, of many of us here. There, there are so many things um, that our children must contend with these days that obscure the goodness and glory of God. And we need God to intervene to reveal his glorious power to our children. And then finally, um, our work. For, for our toil and trouble to not be meaningless, we need God's favor on our work, including what we do vocationally, such that it would be established, that it would be durable and of lasting value. And so concludes the, uh, the three 
kind of movements of this psalm, which provide a bit of a template for us uh, to work through in, in our own seasons of, of difficulty. Let's look up. Remember that God is a dwelling place for his people, a safe place of refuge, as he has proven through all the generations. He is eternal and he is in control of all things, even life and death. Secondly, look out. Know that God sees our iniquities and secret sins and they incur his wrath and that there is futility and frustration in life. And look down. Ask God for an awareness of the shortness of life that brings wisdom. Appeal to the mercy of Yahweh. Seek gladness in God's steadfast love amidst difficulty. Pray for God's power and work to be shown to us and our children and ask for his favour on our work that it might not be in vain. Now just before we wrap up, I wanted to zoom out once more and think again about the premise of Book 4 and, and its placement at the start, uh, as a, at, at the start of Book 4 um, again. We noted uh, back in the introduction that in addition to living in exile in, in a foreign land, God's people were, were facing up to the fact that the line and house of David had come to an end. It had fallen. And it seemed as though God had reneged on his promise he had made to David. Well, we can now know that that wasn't the case. God did raise up an offspring of David to sit on the throne and he did establish a kingdom that would last forever. And that offspring was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus entered into the world and experienced our toil and trouble. But principally, he experienced the wrath of God for our iniquities and secret sins by facing the consequence of sin, death on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus took the full anger of God for the sin that this psalm puts so confrontingly before us. So that those that realize that they too are under the God's wrath for sin, with no recourse but to turn to him, wouldn't have to face it themselves. And he now mediates between us who still sin and a holy God presenting us with his righteousness. Jesus came to be the ultimate Moses, to liberate his people from the, the exile we all experience because of our sin and lead us to the promised land that is eternity in God's presence. So we should look up, we should look out, and we should look down, but we should also look to Jesus, our Saviour, and our true King. Let me pray for us. Father God, would you help us to know and trust and remember who you are, even when life is difficult and it's difficult to see what you're doing and how you're at work in our lives. Father, would you forgive us for our iniquities and secret sins. Thanks for the forgiveness that is available to us in Christ, that we are no longer under condemnation. And Father, we thank you that we are citizens of an eternal kingdom with Jesus as King. So I pray that you would help us to number our days, 
to know our time is short, that we might reap a harvest of wisdom. We pray, God, that you would satisfy us with your steadfast love and make us glad, even amidst the struggle and toil and trouble of our lives. Father, we pray that you would grant us favour in our work and that our work be established and last. Father, we give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.